collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. And welcome to another episode of Collective Power. I am thrilled. I know I say I'm excited at every episode, but I am excited at every episode. I am so excited to have with you all and us today, Andre Alexander. Welcome, Andre. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I was so tempted to call you Dr. Andre. And not like, yet. Not well, yet. PhD candidate. Not yet. PhD student, right? And yeah. you are currently working on your PhD in uh, leadership studies, focusing on business, specifically the music industry, and how social media influencers, human, uh, non-human, influence consumer behavior in the music industry. I love it. The reason I'm really excited to bring this conversation to our listeners is that you and I have known each other for about a year and a half. And my passion about systems and uh, racial injustice and your passion for racial justice and music and the music industry has had it so that we've had this conversation about how the music industry is a system that shows a lot of the rigidities of other aspects of the system in America. We've had this conversation so many times. Yeah. And as much as I've written about systems, I've ever actually written about the music industry, but you have. So I'm really excited to bridge, like to bring to the listeners this conversation, first of all, that you and I have had behind the scenes many times, and then to just bridge the music industry into systems, because we don't think about the music industry as another one of those rigid systems that is keeping people disempowered and poor, and yet it is. So Absolutely. Gonna... Absolutely. That's a little foreplay for what's going to follow here. But before we start, I want to ask you the question I ask all my guests, right? So tell us a story about you that has the listeners know you just a little bit more the way I know you and a little bit more why you're passionate about this topic. So I was born into a musical family where my mother, is, uh, she sings and she, you know, I grew up in church. So she's singing this, you know, what they call quartet music. So, you know, grew up, my father's a musician. He plays the bass, guitar, drums, and sings, and all these things. And so it was very much musical culture in my house. So every Saturday morning, you're listening to phenomenal music. Every event, every barbecue, there's music there, just music everywhere. I grew up and I knew I was a musician immediately. I played piano, took piano lessons, went to school for the arts, all of these things. And then I uh, went to a school for the arts for high school, graduated, went to the military as a musician. 
So all of these things happened. I went to the military. I was assigned to as a White House support unit in the Navy Band of Washington, D.C. as a, a pianist. And then I went on tour, started touring with all these musicians. So I, I had this love for music growing up. Then I had this love and passion for music, you know, professionally at touring and playing and doing all these gigs. But the reason I, I fell into music industry studies was because I realized every time I would ask a musician how they were successful, how did you get this gig? How are you getting paid for a song that's played on the radio? How are you, you know, planning to monetize and make money as a musician after you don't feel like touring? Because we don't, we're in our 20s now. What's going to happen when we're in our 50s and 60s and 70s? I don't want to tour forever. Like, what happens next? And nobody knew the answers to these questions. It wasn't that I actually, I wanted to do it, but I said to myself, you know what? If nobody goes into school, academia, to learn the answers to these questions, I feel like my friends are going to suffer forever. You know, my, the next generation of musicians will suffer. Like, somebody has to give themselves over to learn this topic, to be able to write books and get as much information out to the people as possible. And that's really the story behind it. I know that's probably a short, condensed version, but yeah. So let's start with a little definition of why okay. this is a system, yeah. right? So folks who study systems say that systems are, to study a system, we decide what the boundaries are, not because the boundaries actually exist, but because we need the boundaries to be able to stop somewhere. Because in a system, everything's connected to everything. Yes. So I'm curious, where would you stop? Right. So, so what are the ramifications of music and what are the pieces of this picture, the pieces of the system that you think we should be paying more attention to? Love that. Two pieces. One, the issue with clearly defining it is that music from the beginning of time, sound is so intertwined with our lives that we don't think about it as this business with boundaries, right? It literally is the soundtrack to our lives. The moment you were a child and your favorite show came on, you remember that moment and that feeling comes up. You know, the moment your birthday party, the moment you're coming of age and you go to your first dance and you want to dance with this person that you're in love with and you had a crush on your first crush and you muster up the, the, the emotion and the power and might to go to say, hey, would you dance with me? And they dance with you and you have your first sense of body heat connection and you're dancing too close and the teacher comes. What song was that? The moment you fall in love, your first kiss, you're in the backseat of the car, prom, all of these things have sounds. Your marriage, when you're married and walking down the aisle, right? So we, it's so intertwined into us that we don't think about it from a business standpoint. But let's do that. Now we have all of these experiences. Think about the creators of that experience. There was a writer, a composer, a writer who had to sit there and think about that moment you would have and say, how can I encompass that moment into these three minutes? What's the perfect emotion, perfect feeling, perfect lyrics? That's the composer. That's one part of the industry. Then once the composer, the songwriters wrote that song, you then have the artist, the perfect voice, the perfect delivery and performance of this song. That is the sound recording. 
So you have a song which can be on a piece of sheet music written down in a notepad. Then you have the person who actually performs it, the sound recording, the one that you hit play on in your car, on Spotify, and now we hear that. Those are two separate things, the song itself and then the sound recording that we love, which is why we can have 80 billion versions of one song. Like the song, I Will Always Love You, you know, Whitney Houston. We have the country version. We have Whitney Houston's version. We have acoustic versions, instrumental versions. What's your favorite version? I love this version. You know, think about that. So now the system is clearer. The writers of the song and the performers of the song and all of the ways we monetize that. To go a little deeper, you can start to see the restraints of the system when you think about the people and the businesses involved. So again, back to the beginning, the songwriter, the composer, that is the publishing industry. The publishing industry deals with how do we exploit the rights of this song? And that sounds like a negative word in most cases, but in this case, it's not negative at all. How do we get this song in more places, the most places ever? I want it in film and television. I want lyrics on T-shirts. I wanted it to be on Broadway. When you go to a Broadway play, I want to have a movie based around this song, this album. I want you to perform it in theaters and in, in public places. I want it to be played in the elevator when you're on the elevator. I want it to be in the restaurant when you're in the restaurant eating. I want it to be in the grocery store. Songs in the grocery store. Why are they so slow? It slows you down, it calms you down, and it makes you look at more things that you would have looked at had the song been fast-paced. So we use this for everything, for marketing, for promotion, right? Oh my God, even that's calculated, really? Yes. How slow the song is in a grocery yes. store, for real? We can get, that's the, wow. you know, we can get into neuroscience and neuromarketing strategies and, and, and how songs influence your decision. There's a study... That was done. I don't even know how we got into studies already, but we're here now. So we're here. There was a study dealing um, with college students. I think they had about 151 college students and they were trying to figure out if uh, this was done with the LGBTQ plus community where they had college students listen to, was it 14 or 17 minutes of rap music that was derogatory to the LGBTQ plus community. And it took that many minutes for them to develop a negative response to applicants for a job. They then told these college students they had the ability to give a job to other people. Like you're gonna now hire someone. They were reluctant to meet one-on-one with these students. They were reluctant with these LGBTQ plus community members. They were reluctant to, to hire them for the positions. They saw them as weak. All of these things because of rap lyrics, right? So now music has the ability to change culture and influence culture. One, which means why does that affect uh, commerce? What alcohol brands are we drinking? It's in the song. It tells us what to drink. What fashion are we going to wear? It's in the song. It tells us what to wear. You know, so all of these things, the songwriter is extremely important in taking culture and communicating it to people, creating culture. So yes. So again, the songwriter that is signed to a publisher traditionally. So the publisher is the business, composer, songwriter, et cetera. They are the creators, the the gasoline that fuels that industry. Composition. Now to the sound recording side, super easy. Record labels, we know about them. What label are you signed to? We have the artists themselves. 
the face, the performer, et cetera, et cetera. We, they, they record the album, they record the record that we love, and now we support that. So both the, the songwriter and the artists that are controlled by the publisher and the record label. That was a lot of words. <laughs> Hopefully it was clearly stated. It was absolutely clear. So basically one piece is the song and the other piece is the recording of the song. And there are yes. two separate businesses that regulate both of them. They're connected, but they're separate. Too. Absolutely. And regulated differently. For example, um, how we get paid as a songwriter is regulated by the government, the copyright royalty board, how much you get paid in royalties. But because record labels are different, they can negotiate their fees. So now you're making more money over here than over here. Even though the record label would not exist, artists would not exist without the song. How is that fair? So we're now already restricting oh how much composers are getting paid. You know, so we're starting to get a clearer picture. So composers aren't paid for every time it's played on the radio. Record labels are paid for every time it's played on the radio. And watch this, different. Yes, it's actually backwards in the US. And we won't get into neighboring rights, but yes, it's backwards. So when it's played on the radio, that's a, a public performance, which pays the composer, the publisher who pays the composer, if they've paid back their loan already. So that's another conversation. So they may have taken a loan to sign with this publisher. So if they recouped or paid back their loan, then they're paid, you know, that royalty. Okay, because... So we'll- this is a conversation that when you and I had it just completely blew my mind, right? Like I had never thought of music artists as, um, I'm going to use a strong word, enslaved. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And you really opened my eyes. I always thought them as celebrities who certainly had a ton of money and were dressing the part and acting the part, right? Yes. And you really opened my eyes to the fact that many artists, artists, be them singer-songwriters or composers or musicians, are in the hole financially. Yeah. Yeah. And, And why that happens, right? Like, I feel like there's, what I know is the publicity stunts of when we find out as a public that they're in the hole, we always like go all into their life and leave no stone unturned as to, well, this person has this habit and that habit and that habit. What really woke me up from how you spoke to me about it is it's not just an issue of habit, spending habits or addictions for that matter. It's literally how contracts are built and that's systemic. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, so and I always break it down from the uh, composer standpoint and the artist standpoint because they're different. So from a songwriter standpoint, you sign with the publisher and the publisher may say something to the effect of, um, you know, this is going to sound really simple. How about I pay you $100,000 to write three uh, to, let's say, five songs a year? The average person would say, "Uh, yeah, are you kidding me? I'm going to take that money because that seems fair. Five songs, let's say f- even 10 songs for $100,000 a year. You go, that's it. Let's go. But the- I can even write five songs a year for $100,000. <laughs> so you think. But then, and the- you uh, certainly can too. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. A um, newly Grammy nominated musician. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know when I was going to kind of put that in, but there we are. 
No, no, yeah. So I'm still excited. We find out in April about so I'm nominated for John Batiste's album. We are, I was a composer on Song Freedom. So we find out, give me all the good vibes, everybody. Mm, then, Absolutely you know, April, good vibes. I think it's April 3rd or 4th, we find out. So yeah, so I'm trying to grow this till then, even though it's not, it's not, it's doing all right. Whatever, whatever, trying whatever. to grow your beard? Your That's beard my thing. Like I wasn't not shaving okay. until after the Grammys. I'm not shaving until after the Grammys. Our listeners are listening. Okay. My beard, shave my beard. How do artists end up in the hole? Okay, well, let's go back to composers. We were there first. So the composers will sign with the publisher. We back, let's say, five songs for $100,000, right? That seems really simple and straightforward. But contractually, that's five 100% ownership of a song. So that means if I write five songs by myself, I get them placed on a major label artist. They're then synced, meaning placed in film and television for certain fees, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things, that means they are placed. So that's five songs. At 100%, I would have recouped, meaning repaid back the loan. Everything is good. We won. You're just talking about loan. Where does the loan come in? Loan. Remember that $100,000 we discussed. If the publisher says to the writer, hey, I'll pay you $100,000 to write five songs. Remember that? The $100,000 is the loan or the advance. In advance, it's considered a loan that you have to repay back. Is that clear? Yes. So, yes. So now you write the five songs, you're supposed to get, you know, paid that, we win. It seems simple, but the average writer does not write alone. For example, if you and I wrote together, that means you own 50% of the song, I own 50% of the song. In order for me to get to five, 100% of the song, then with you and I writing together, I would have to write how many songs? 10 songs. So that's 50% of one, 50%. So now that's 10 songs that have to be placed on major label artists, that have to be placed in film and television, that have to be all these things. Can I control if 10 major label artists are going to take my songs? No, but the majority of songs are not written by two people. Now we get to where they're written by three, four, five, and six, and even more people. So that means I have to write 60 songs a year, get them placed on major label artists, get them synced in film and television, et cetera, et cetera. Can the average writer do that without relationships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? No. So now you've taken this $100,000. You've probably spent, bought clothes, bought a new house because you were excited about it, thinking you only had to write five songs, not understanding this one concept, and then you're stuck. That's a general basic idea. We can go further and deeper into that. Now we get to artists. Same, same kind of a concept. Artists sign with the label and take an advance, which is a what? A loan that must be repaid back. And the contracts for the artists will specify exactly how royalties will be accepted. What I mean by that is these artists could be generating millions of dollars. They could be doing a lot of shows live performances, they could be selling merchandise, they could be doing all of these things, some of which extra income or ancillary income that labels be making money from, but the contract could state you can only repay back the loan from album sales and album streams. So even though they're generating money, labels are making money from their activities, they may not be able to repay back the loan because of the small amount of money that's generated via streams. So I can have a full house for a concert, but if my contract mm -hmm. says that my royalties only get paid back by streaming on radio at 8 a.m. in the morning, well, yeah, then... that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, but think about that. So, 
most artists or composers and songwriters don't realize they can ask for things like, well, can I just repay back the loan myself and get out of the deal? They don't even put that in the contract. There's so many things that they don't know about. And so they're just getting screwed and screwed and stuck in these, these deals where they can't get out of. You know? And they're bound to perform until those royalties are paid off. According um, to the perform, meaning that's, if they want to recoup, you want to keep going. So that means the, the first album could have happened and it's not recouped. And now they're in a hole. The second album may happen. Let's say they're not recouped. The third album, maybe they're success and they're actually making money, but they still have to pay back the first two albums. So now the money that they actually should be owed is now being paid or used to pay back these other albums. So like, so, and then, so think about the state of the world when we're in the pandemic, where artists were not able to perform live. So, that, so now the one stream of income they're actually able to make live performances, they're not making any money because we were at home for two years. We were horribly impacted as composers, as artists during the pandemic, because people thought that these artists were rich, but they're only making money if they're performing. If they're not performing. The majority of them are not making money. So you envisioned and started writing an encyclopedia for the music business, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. And so then this explains why you're so passionate about that, because you're really passionate about artists and composers understanding even the legal ramifications of what kind of contracts they're signing, because yes. most composers and artists aren't aware, correct? Absolutely. Um, so it's called the Music Industry Encyclopedia, which I'm still, you know, writing and working on. I realized most artists will not read thick books. So these are going to be smaller books based off of subjects like, you know, finances for musicians, the best way to handle them, press releases and PR for the music industry, being your own agent, managing yourself, booking your gigs, getting on the radio. They Each topic be written between uh, be, uh, with me and a professional in that specific industry, that segment of the industry. And we basically write a book and give it to you know, the artists that way. Because it's a lot to learn. It's, there is a lot of information that you have to learn, you know? All right, so we've covered kind of this definition of the system where you started us, right? Like this kind of, of the <laughs> yeah. Like the composer pipeline, the actual song pipeline and the recording pipeline. And then we went to where we are now, which is that, yes, like all other systems in the United States, there are rigid mechanisms to kind of keep artists and composers stuck in these. Yeah, from actually doing well. Yes. So then the question I have is about data, right? This is still our data geek series. I know that you are an absolute data geek, even as you are a musician. And so I'm just curious, like, what kind of studies have you put your hands on that have just highlighted even more the injustice of the system for you? Let's talk about this. So let's see. I think IBIS World states that the publishing industry is like a $6.4 billion a year industry. We have that. And I think that the major labels are, are $9 billion a year, you know, industry. So making a lot of money, generating a lot of money. However, only what was it um, two percent of artists on Spotify make over a thousand dollars a year. Two percent. That means the majority of people that are on Spotify are not making over a thousand dollars a year. A thousand dollars a year. 
So think about this. When you go in in Spotify, it's its own thing. And I don't know if I can cuss on the radio, but I'm not. But just know that I would say all of the negative words if I could say them on Spotify. But like, so so think about this. The majority of artists, it was like um, 870 artists on Spotify make a million dollars plus a year. 870 artists make a million dollars plus. That means a lot of artists that you know, whose names you know, are not making that much money. You know, think about that. So we get into that piece. What are the statistics? There's, there's quite a few. It takes about 229 streams on Spotify specifically, because they're one of the lowest paying streaming services, but they own the biggest market share. 229 streams to get $1 to get $1. And so now, and you don't even get that dollar yourself. You have to split that dollar amongst so many people. So even a million streams is like $4,000. And the average artist is not getting a million streams. You have to get how many millions of streams a month to make a decent living, you know? So the stat system in itself is not even set up. And then even, we're gonna stay on Spotify, we're here now. The three major labels own an 18% share in Spotify. So not only are they getting paid by Spotify, they also get to own a share of Spotify. So they make millions of dollars from the success of Spotify every year. And the average per artist is getting paid a third of a cent per stream on Spotify. And what are these three major labels? Uh, That's Warner, that's Sony, and that's Universal. I mean, there's so much data. There's about, I think the independent musician segment of the industry makes about $318 million a year. So that's decent, but there's no unifying body to take that $318 million and to do something so that we can all benefit as independent musicians. So even though we're generating millions of dollars as independent musicians, we don't have the, the unification of Universal Warner and Sony who can say, we're going to buy segments of Spotify now. Imagine if we did that as independent artists, we would have better buying uh, negotiating power when it comes to how we move in, you know, in the music industry. How does race factor into this? Mm, that's a brilliant question. There was, was research done and they found that the majority of contracts given to black artists are absolutely worse than their white counterparts. And there was only one label that I can't remember which one it was at this moment that actually went back and changed some of those deals to make them at least equitable to their white counterparts. If you think of how social class uh, factors into this, you find a brilliant, uh, let's say a rapper, you know, who lives in Philly, brilliant rapper. He's, you know, garnering some success, phenomenal, uh, you know, stage presence. He's doing all of the things we love in the music industry. And then you go up to him or her and say, hey, I want to give you this deal for, you know, $150,000. This is probably the most amount of money this person has ever seen in their entire lives, depending on where they're from, right? So now they can't afford to get a lawyer to negotiate this contract for them. So they'll either just sign it or the label will say something to the effect of, hey, don't worry about it. We will give you and pay for the lawyer for you. Just sign this little thing saying we're in negotiations. 
Once they sign that document saying they're in negotiations, they cannot negotiate with another label, which means they must sign a deal with the label. Mm. Do you see? So it's like there's all these catch 22s. Like it's like, well, do I do this or do I just sign it and hope? So yeah, these predatory practices. But there's one point I want to actually make dealing with this. Most people look at artists as though they are employees of labels. That is not the case. If you look at the value chain, you know, each thing that adds value to the product, the artist is the first buyer. And I, I like to put this in like a, the car industry. Think about a taxi driver. You have all of the raw materials for the car, you know, that come together, that then they sell that to the car dealership. The car dealership would be the record label. The car dealership then goes and finds as many taxi drivers to purchase taxis and get loans from them. So they can repay back the loan. And that's their business model. Same thing for the record industry. The record industry goes and finds as many songwriters as possible to sign deals so they can repay back loans with them. Who are the secondary buyers after the songwriters? That's the fans. The fans are going to shows. The fans are purchasing merchandise. The fans are, you see? So it's actually set up just like any other business where the major buyers are the artists purchasing loans from record labels so they are not employees so we're trying to make this system into something that it's not this system is designed to get as many artists to take loans as possible and then the the artists that don't repay back the loans can be used as tax write-offs for the record labels i feel like there's so much to talk about so Let's shift gears to what can be created. And I love that you kind of brought it down to the business level, right? Is the yeah. for us, right? We're the consumers. And uh, to the point of the show, collective power, right? We have a collective mm-hmm. power over what we consume and what we don't consume, which is part of where we can leverage power, right? Yeah. But speak to us a little bit more about, like, how do you envision this cha- changing? So I know that as we mentioned, you're writing the the music industry encyclopedia with the intent of popularizing common knowledge and misconceptions around how contracts are done. Yeah. What is it that you envision and are working towards and what can we do too? It's so funny because like I love business, right? I'm a business owner. I study entrepreneurship. I study marketing strategies, all of these things. I have nothing against business. It's just when you prey on people who have no knowledge of how to defend themselves. That's where my issue comes. So my thing is, how do we empower more artists to know basic terms of contracts, basic copyright understanding? So my vision is education for independent artists and songwriters so they can understand predatory deal. You know, same thing from the composer side as well as the artist side. One. Two, joining organizations like the Songwriters of North America, I'm a board member there, we empower and teach songwriters these skills. What are the issues we're dealing with? So really having a collective of people who come together for the purposes of protecting ourselves and fortifying the next generation of writers and artists with information so they can be better prepared to deal with major labels. Because I'm like, The work that they do is great. Let's keep that work up. However, let's make these deals more equitable. What's another thing? 
It's really just education and understanding that at this point in history, because of social media, we have the ability to, to go directly to fans. So instead of believing that you must sign with a major first anyway, how about you learn the business by going through all the processes yourself, right? You can distribute your own music, put it out. You can, you know, start do your own shows, like do everything yourself, get some success, learn how to engage fans, learn what it means to be an entrepreneur, because that's what the process is. And then when you're approached by a label, notice I said approached, not you approaching them. It's because you already have some success. Learn the ways to monetize a sound recording. Learn the ways to monetize a song. And then focus on making money in each of these avenues so that then labels will approach you. Deals are better that way. Then you understand if somebody's doing a good job or not doing a good job. You understand the activities that you must continue to do to make money. So, I mean, ultimately, it boils down to education, really. You know, me educating and removing some of the noise, because if you Google, you know, how to be successful, there's a billion people with their subjective opinions about what success looks like. But you and I as researchers know that you can do one dive into the literature and there's already quantifiable research done that says these are the ways to properly monetize. If every independent artist was armed with those facts, then it'll be a different industry because they will be able to generate money on their own first. But just like in any other system, blindness is what keeps it intact. And in this system, if artists has no idea how to monetize, if an artist has no idea how to engage with film and television experts to get a song on television, how to engage with social media strategy, they have no idea what the streams of income are, how will they even know how to actually make money? So they win because of blindness. You know, how do we remove the blinders is always my question. So, yeah, remove the blinders, education. That's fascinating that what you just said, that every system upholds itself by maintaining a level of blindness. I wonder who I heard that from. Who did you hear it from? <laughs> of course, your book. <laughs> Sandra, you've, you've played a really, really important part in, in the writing of that book, having been a soundboard for a whole year in the writing process and inspire me to do actually just what you're describing for the music industry. So inspiring me to write a book, self-publish it, go straight to the consumers, and just trust the process from there on and just trust that it would do well on its own. Uh, it would do well with you doing the right activities, you know, like right. the ones that are already right. established for success. That's it. We're not making right. anything up. We're literally going in line with commerce. It's already yeah. been established for us. It's just fascinating. As much as you say you got for me, right? There's something about how you said it that has me see it from a new lens, mm. right? This mm -hmm. piece around systems actually hiding the big picture, hiding the big picture and then hiding our collective power, our personal and our collective power around it. Yes. Because part of what I hear in the vision you're creating, you're saying it's education, but it's also the ripple effects of education, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have three artists, it's not the elite version of education, because oftentimes when we think about education, we think of it as oh, well, then three people will make it instead of one person making it, 
right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's what you're saying. I think what you're saying is, no, if a hundred artists, three artists are able to negotiate fairer contracts, then they can mentor another 10 who can mentor another hundred. And by okay. the time you get to 500, you have a union. Yes, that is such a spectacular thing to think about. So think about, again, with indie artists generating quite a bit of income for the music industry, right? Imagine if word of mouth, if we engaged with bloggers, if we engaged with the social media influencers and educated them alone, the information we would distribute like a wildfire. These are the ways to monetize. These are the ways to market properly. Like, like if we can even get 40% of independent artists to be able to generate a decent income, the world would change because then they would say, oh my gosh, I don't have to sign a predatory deal then the system must change because they would want to attract but more educated artists, more educated writers, right? Because the better artists wouldn't, yes. I'm thinking about the expression in Italian, but... Say it in Italian. compromessi. They won't um, compromise. Yes, all of that. Compromise. See, in Italian, the interesting thing is being Italian, it says you won't lower down to a compromise. Mm. You won't lower yourself to a compromise, right? Yeah. You won't diminish yourself in the face of a compromise. Because yeah. it's not just a compromise, it's actually a compromise that demeans and diminishes what you have to offer. Your value, look. Yes. And that's the whole thing. For example, I'll go into another thing. I'm also the co-founder of an NFT platform for independent artists where they're able to take their digital assets and sell them directly to their fans and build these communities, right? Tell right. us the name so our yes. listeners... Song Rise, S-O-N-G-R-I-S-O. -S -S you can go to songrise.io and check it out. So songrise.io absolutely is a thing. So with that being said, we literally are able... If every artist decided that they didn't have to be as big as Jay-Z or Beyonce, right? Every artist just focused their entire energy on starting with 100 true fans. That they grew to 1,000 true fans. They, every artist with 1,000 true fans can make six figures a year. And they can just give this these fans what they wait, wanted. Wait, That's wait, it. wait, wait. How did you get to six figures with 1,000 it's, it's, it's called the 1,000 true fan theory, right? Think about this. You have a thousand true fans that that'll pay you a hundred dollars. That's a hundred thousand dollars. Is it difficult to give in one year, one person enough value to pay you a hundred dollars in a year as a musician? No, that is show. That is a show. That is merchandise. That is you know VIP access to short smaller events. Like it's not difficult, but we as a community don't teach our people that our value only lies with the fans who see value in us. We are absolute servants to our fans. As the person who writes the soundtrack, I have to know your life. I have to know age you're in, which your education level, what brings you joy to write the perfect, I have to know you. I have to give myself over to knowing you and giving you what you actually want. When it's time to have children, am I gonna write the perfect song for your firstborn child? When it's time to get a divorce, am I going to write this? I have to know the emotion and feelings and live with you to be able to give you what you need to write the perfect soundtrack for your life. Or but you have to tune into the authenticity of your own experience with a depth and a genuineness that had just has a thousand people who are just like you in the world. Yes. follow Your journey with you. Yes. But think about that. 
that's not Beyonce. Beyonce is absolutely tuning in at such a societal level that she now every woman is empowered. Like that's amazing, right? But everybody doesn't have to be Beyonce to be successful. But that blindness is she's so bright that I have to be as big as that. We also love Pluto. That's a star too. Well, it's not a star anymore. It's something else. It used to be a planet when I was a kid. It's not a planet. This is a little bit of a jump, but um, let's jump. I'm going to indulge in it for a second. It's that oftentimes when I talk about art, I think in the United States, in some ways, we have a more freeing relationship with art. And people always think that Italians are very artistic and we're very artistic in our culture. But because we've had these great artists, right? The Michelangelo and the Raffaello, anytime you tell someone they're creative and artistic, they're like, ah, I'm nothing. And I think that's what I hear you saying with, we do with music. We diminish ourselves in the face of other people's lights and it doesn't have to be that way. We diminish ourselves in the success of other people. Remember, this is also the American dream. So you have that thing always playing in our psyche. Get to the biggest amount of money and the biggest this. But it's also the only way success can be is if you're as big as Beyonce doing this. When in actuality, success is, are you eating food every day by, by, you know, using your art form? Are you able to live and make a decent living, you know, using your art form? That doesn't even have to be six figures. You know what I mean? So are you able to sustain yourself doing something you love with people you enjoy being with? That is absolute success to me, Right. And everything else comes from that. And then you, then you scale that. You go from a thousand fans to a thousand and one fans because somebody else, a fan, word of mouth, like there's other ways to be. And with technology, you may only need 100 true fans who can pay you a thousand dollars a year. Same thing. But you're literally focusing all of your energy and efforts on those fans, really engaging with them. You know, that does not stroke your ego. If you only have 100 fans paying you $1,000 a year, that's $100,000, but that doesn't stroke your ego. I can't, you're not going to fill up, you know, Taj Mahal with that or whatever it is. But like, you know, you know, that's what I'm saying. So it's, we have to just really define success for ourselves in the music industry and be okay once you reach that level of success, you know? This has been absolutely amazing. As all our conversations are, I feel like one of the big gifts of my life. So any last thoughts and how do people get in touch with you? Well, I'm mostly on Instagram. So if you want to like reach out, I'm always on Instagram, Andre Alexander, that's spelled A-N-D-R-A-E, Alexander. So Instagram, same on Facebook, the same on everything. LinkedIn, I think it's I am Andre Alexander. Again, Andre, A-N-D-R-A-E, Alexander. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn, Instagram, all of the things. You can check out Sona, the Songwriters of North America. Like I said, I'm a board member there. Come check us out if you're a, a creative wanting to figure out how to be involved and what to, to do. If you're into NFTs and want to get that going, check out songrise.io. I'm there as well. And uh, yeah, and just tell them Andre sent you everywhere you go and it'll be great. And how do we look out for your Grammy nomination? Uh, The album is We Are. I'm nominated for Album of the Year. John Batiste, We Are. If they, when they call that for the Grammys, I need you all to scream off with me and whatever you're drinking, I need you to take two shots of that. 
That's all I'm going to say because it's going to be the party of all parties, the end. I love it. <laughs> Any other final thoughts? Um, final thoughts. You may have already dropped the mic, but just no, 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 no mic drop yet. My final thoughts thought is really simple. It's like we all have this gift of life. We get to walk around, breathe, love, smell the roses and flowers and hear children play, all these things. Do the thing that you would do without getting paid, right? And figure out how to monetize that. And don't look at anyone else's version of success. Define your own level of success. Define happiness for you and figure out how to do that more. And then you never, ever have to retire. You can do that for the rest of your entire life and die smiling. That's it. That was dramatic. I know. Don't judge me. Andre, it was absolutely a pleasure having you. Thank you for inviting us to come back to our soul and what brings us joy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Rita. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.